Hello and welcome to Meet the Researcher, where we meet staff from the Faculty of Sport, Health and Social Sciences at Solent University. This podcast is for anyone interested in research and the person behind the process. It's hosted by me, Dr Emma Mosley and Dr Mark Turner, where we take it in turns to chat to faculty members to get to know them and their research. We hope you enjoy. Okay, so welcome to this next episode of Meet the Researcher, hosted by me, Dr. Mark Turner. Today, I have the pleasure and the privilege of welcoming Dr. Brian McDonough to the podcast series. Brian is a course leader in sociology here at Solent and has recently published a new book titled Flying Aeroplanes and Other Sociological Tales, an Introduction to Sociology and Sociological Research. Brian, it's fantastic to get this opportunity to speak to you today and for us to learn a bit more about you, uh, who you are and what, what you're doing. So, so welcome. So, so who's Brian McDonough and how did you get to where you are today here at Solent? Well, I always talk about my, um, my upbringing, my education, and growing up in Liverpool in the 1980s and 90s as being quite a key part of... Um, doing sociology and becoming a sociologist um you know so if you go back to sort of 1980s and think about Thatcher you know Thatcher Britain and what that was like in in parts of the northwest and other parts of the the UK um it was quite a challenging and and difficult time um but I say challenging and difficult when I was you know when I was a kid I didn't know any different you know so (laughs) <laughs> it was just uh, that's all I knew you know uh, growing up we had um, my mum and dad lived behind a, um, a block of shops um, in, in Croxteth um, my primary school was around the corner my nursery school was around the corner my secondary school comprehensive was was, was, was around the corner so everything was kind of like <clears throat> was just there on on, on the doorstep um, and I don't think, like, you know, 1980s, you know, working class family, they never thought about, oh, getting, getting you into a good school or a better school or <laughs> you just went, you just went with you, where your mates went or you went to, you know, to school where, you know, where, where it was local to you. Um, so, so I went, yeah, I think that's a key part because what I later sort of realised when you, when you leave where you, you grow up and you know I, I came down to London I lived in London for many years um, and you meet different people and you realize actually from moving away um, that, that sort of anthropological strangeness you move a, away from somewhere and you start to appreciate it even more um, so so that was I think that's sort of like a, you know a, a, a key part of um, um, my sort of uh, sort of background to uh, uh, doing sociology and being a sociologist, um, but the um, the school I was talking about the, the school was occupied in the nineteen eighties. They had, they had a, a physical occupation because um, they were trying to close it down, and um, and I I wasn't at the school. I was so I was as I've been about um, as I've been about two or three during the occupation, um, but I certainly heard about it. Um, and then when I went to school, it wasn't really talked about, but there was this sort of real ethos in the school, real community ethos in the school. And during that occupation, when they stopped paying teachers' salaries, they started to um, um, bring in guitar players, um, local artists, local musicians, um, maybe construction people. Um, they just brought in sort of local people who, who offered to, to volunteer. And actually, they had people from all over the country travel to to Croxford to uh, to offer to teach in the school, which I just think is like absolutely amazing. Can you imagine what the curriculum, you know, might not have been the most, you know, um, amazing academic curriculum, but it was a it was a a curriculum, you know, taught by people about their professions and their vocations, and um, I. I, I uh, really um, superb uh, academic Phil Francis Korsbecken. Um, he was at Aston University, he's from the US, 
and um, in the 1980s and he, he heard about the occupation and he went and he did his PhD on the occupation and he helped um, do the, the, the school timetables and so on. Um, and and Karspeck and later, <laughs> when, I, when I found out about Karspeck and I, I wrote to him when I was at university doing my PhD um, and he couldn't believe that I'd been to Croxteth Post, post the occupation <laughs> uh, and he, uh, he uh, one thing or another he, he basically he's, he's one of the, the guys who um, who reviews my um, my latest text that you mentioned at the start the flying airplanes text um, and I'm still in touch with them um, still in touch with them now so it's it's a it's an amazing kind of that's an amazing kind of network if you like you know yeah. we talk about networks all the time and we yeah. talk about you know influential people and wealthy people having networks um but actually um pe people in uh, poorer communities can also have networks and useful networks and use them all the time to to our advantage and to their advantage so um so that was my bit of you know my, my bit of uh bit of network and, and and that sort of relationship with that sort of occupation but I didn't really, I didn't understand it, you know, through school. You know, I, I used to, um, I just suppose like, you know, most kids, you know, I used to go to the gym, local sports centre. I used to go to school. Um, I stayed on at school. Um, there, was a, there was about 150 kids in my year. And, and only, um, apparently it was 13% um, managed to get five A to C's at GCSE. Um, so basically, eighty-seven percent, you know, didn't get five A to C's. Um, so that sort of speaks volumes about, you know, the the the, the sort of academic potential. Well, potential is probably not the right word, but you know, the the academic sort of outcomes of that of that um, of that school culture and, and environment. Um, but about two thirds of the kids had, you know, special needs in one way or another. Um, learning needs, learning difficulties that went back to um, problems with their childhood or issues with their childhood. Um, but many of those kids, you know, you set them to another school, another environment, another culture would have done um, remarkably well. And, um, and we doubled, we, we doubled the year before. So we were like the good year because the year before it was like 7%. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, uh, and yeah, so it was, it was just like, you know, it was just a really challenging place, but it was a really, a really amazing place to be as well. And it's difficult to explain. You know, I feel like really privileged to have, to have gone there um, and grew up there. But I also realised that there was like loads of disadvantage um, to that sort of school and education community. Um, Croxteth, of course, you know, associated with lots of uh, 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 trouble. Um, gangs, you know, you, you'll know about the sort of the Reese Jones um, yeah. getting yeah. shot and in, 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 in killed in, in Croxteth. Um, there's a Reese Jones Centre in, in Croxteth in, in Liverpool. Um, and there's been like loads of programmes about, about gangs, but it's always made out to be far worse than, than what it is. So I, I read, I was reading um, Wayne Rooney's biography and the, the guy who wrote it, you know, uh, basically said, you know, um, oh, I c he, he can hear the, you go to Croxford and you hear the police helicopters, you know, in the distance, like, like as if it's a war zone, you know. And it's not like that at all. It's, in fact, it's one of the safest places you could ever walk down the street because it's so friendly and people are, yeah. you know, people are so warm and friendly. But you have to say, so have these sort of stereotypes of, of, of places like that. And, um, Wayne, Wayne Rooney actually went to De La Salle, which was at the Catholic school, which was, they were slightly better off than we were in the, in the, in, in Liverpool, you've got a lot of Catholic, um, a lot of Catholic schools and um, sort of Church of England schools. So there wasn't much choice really for, for where, I, where, I, where, I, where I sort of, in, where I lived and, you know, to go to a local school. Um, so that was like sort of my like sort of education, and then I did I did sociology A level and absolutely loved it. Um, I've still got a great relationship with my um, my A level school teacher, my sociology school teacher, believe it or not. Um, and um, 
I, I'm also part of um, that say, those same people who are part of that occupation. They opened up a, a community organization um, and I'm a trustee of the organization. Um, so, I, you know, I don't, I don't really, I don't do much. I attend the, the AGMs and things like that. And, uh, but I was really proud to be a, you know, a trustee in, in, in obviously in, in Croxford. And they're, they're absolutely huge. They're doing fantastic things. Um, they took over, the, the council were going to um, demolish the church and they, they took it over and turned it into an adult skills centre. Um, the council were going to get rid of the local library and they said, no, don't do that. We'll take it over and we'll run it. Um, they were going to get rid of the sports centre and they said, no, we, we'll, we'll take it over and we'll, we'll run it. So they're just doing like the, 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 a community organisation which are doing amazing things. Um, up in Liverpool and loads, a lot of researchers are going up there to, to talk with them as well um, about the work that they're doing. So that just gives you kind of like a bit of, a bit of background, you know, in terms of school and, and, and education. And um, I, did, I did my A-levels and, and then went on and did my degree in, in sociology, um, which I, you know, absolutely absolutely loved you know going on to do the degree really I did that's where I sort of fell in love really fell in love with the discipline I'm just th I was just thinking when you were talking about you know you, these experiences and um and then you know also encountering stereotypes and you know sensationalism which I, I've also experienced having grown up in um you know a certainly hard um industrial working class town in the northwest as well um slightly different to liverpool but certainly experienced it um and this like juxtaposition of disadvantage and privilege you, you talked about i'm just wondering in what ways those experiences and feelings have shaped your professional life if they have yeah that's a that's a really good question mark i, I think um one of the things that when you're disadvantaged in any way is um you've not got that pressure of if you're if you if you are very privileged and and say privileged you know that we can break that down to, that can mean all sorts of things but you know i know there's a, a lot of young people out there fantastic young people who um from more privileged backgrounds who have enormous pressure on to do really well, you know, so they've got to be hitting A's, you know, there's, there's no, you know, you know, you look at other schools in Liverpool, grammar schools in Liverpool, you know, in the 1980s, some of them were like, you know, 99%, five A to C's, you know, um, some of them, you know, it's kind of like, you, you, if your child goes there, they're expected to get A's, you know, maybe the odd B, but A's, straight A's or A stars. Now that's like enormous, like pressure. Um, put on on a young person, whether they're from you know it doesn't matter how privileged they are you know that's in, in enormous pressure to put on a young person. And what I didn't have, I didn't have any of that pressure. It was amazing, <laughs> you know. My my, my mum and dad would have been really proud, you know. Whatever I did, as long as you know, um, I didn't do anything bad, you know. <laughs> as long as I was a good person, they they would have you know loved me, you know whatever I whatever I did with myself. It didn't matter if I got A's, it didn't matter if I got B's, it didn't matter if I got C's, D's. It really wasn't a big issue for them. Um, and that's partly because, you know, that they, they were, were, you know, were unfamiliar with that sort of, that system, if you like. You know, they grew up. Yeah. They just left school at 15. They, yeah. You know, they went and, they went and worked in factories. My mum worked in a, a, crackers, a cracker, cracker factory, Jacob's Crackers, and my dad worked in. Uh, numerous places a, a sausage factory bowyers you know among yeah a bakers and other things so there wasn't that like that when they when they had children and they had me and my brother when they were in their 30s um so sort of quite late actually in in, in the 90 for the 1980s um i suppose they just didn't they didn't think about you know oh they've got you know education wasn't like a priority you know, my mum used to say, you know, I don't know what she actually used to say. I don't know why, why you, you know, when I was stressed with uni work, you know, I don't know about why you bother with this. You know, you could have like, you could have just become a car mechanic or something. 
<laughs> you know, like she had other what. So so there was that kind of like um there was that there was that non-pressure, but that was quite a good thing because I didn't have anyone saying you've got to study, you've got to, you know, work really hard, you've got to, you've got to achieve. I didn't have any of that pressure. Any pressure that I had was all from myself. I I get I put the pressure on myself. Um and I think that I've taken that into into working life and you know professional life you know because um someone was asking me for some advice recently and I said look don't put pressure on yourself um or don't let other people put pressure on you to to publish for example publish research um you know get into the sort of the the ref game of you know um having to publish you know every year and x many papers every year or whatever um because what you know who are you doing that for and what are you doing that for you know <laughs> um i'm like i'm just so i'm so grateful that i was able to one go to university two you know get a degree and then get a higher degree and three be able to have a you know a fantastic what i think is a fantastic um role as a as a sociologist and as an academic and i just feel like really really privileged and really grateful for that i know that academics are one of you know are also one of the most exploited <laughs> groups of workers you know anywhere you know um in in lots of ways you know people exploited and when i started teaching the guy who recommended me to come and do some um hourly paid teaching back in 2004 um, he was he was my course lead of sociology. He said, Brian, come come and do some, you know some teaching. But he sat me down. He said, Listen, you're going to be exploited for the next. If you if you want to stay in academia, you're going to be exploited for the next five or ten years. I guarantee. <laughs> I was just like, you know, this was like the job interview. You know, you tell you're getting told, <laughs> this is one of the going to be. This is the best job and one of the worst jobs. And he said, Brian, you're going to be, you're going to be exploited. He said, you're going to be hourly paid probably for the next um, five years. He was right. You know, I was, I, was, I was hourly paid for the next five years. He went, it'll take you ages to get a fractional appointment. He was right. You know, it took me five or six years to get a fractional appointment. He said, even when you get that, you'll still be exploited because you'll be doing two days a week, expected to, you know, be like a full-timer. Um and you're not going to get paid and you don't get paid properly in the, you know as as an hourly paid member of staff you know as a fractional member of staff you don't get paid properly you know over the summer over christmas over easter so he was absolutely right and it you know i didn't get a full time post for for you know 10 years um after i had that conversation and he was you know spot on you know and, and correct with all of that um so so on the one hand i i felt you know I'm, I feel really privileged. On the other hand, I know I'm aware that there's lots of um, exploitative relationships within academia, and I think you've got to try and manage those. Those you've got to try and manage those things. You've got to say, well, look, I've got I'm lucky in this respect, you know. But I'm I'm also you know I'm not going to be you know get into the rat race of having to you know. It depends on the pressures, of course. Some universities, the pressure's always on for you to teach. And other universities, the pressure's always on for you to, to publish. Um, and you want to try to, you know, um, keep, keep, yes, keep a steady, you know, as best you can, because sometimes it's out of your control, but try to manage that as best you can. I was just thinking, you know, listening to your, it's really... <laughs> It's, it's not only really interesting, but it's also um, it, it's quite a, a sort of humbling uh, experience to listen to someone who is able to, I guess, shackle pressure like that, you know, and, and you know, for people maybe who are listening who are doing a PhD, <laughs> which is one of the most difficult yeah. and pressurised um, experiences, you know, is there any sort of advice there? Well, I, I had a I had a fantastic supervisor, a guy called Dr. Chris Rhodes, who, um, who I'm still in, I'm I'm still very much in in in, in touch with and, and and friends with, um, you know. So he really he inspired me to um, to start doing the PhD, um, and he was quite yeah 
quite inspirational in, in lots of ways. But he was also he was also very very old school. He he did his PhD at the LSC. He had uh, Anthony Giddens as his as his oh, external, wow. um, examiner because it was all about you know Giddens and stuff is all about the nation state and and um, popular resistance and and you know the state's power and control over its over its people. So that was what his research was all about, and um, and and so I had a very sort of a very old school experience, you know, someone who you know. 1960, 1970s, you know, was at the LSC doing their PhD, um, and 1970s and 80s was doing research, and and you know, he said to me, look, you know, every time we 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 got so far with with part of the PhD, we celebrated like so. So we went down to the pub. So it could be, you know, <laughs> it could be getting one interview done, or oh. it could be. Um, analyzing an interview or it could be getting through the first year of your, your your PhD where you've got to you know fill out all them them dreadful forms and send a, a, a mini a mini you know chapter of your PhD and actually what I find is people don't they don't celebrate all the midpoints and they don't feel like that you, you, you just feel lost because you don't feel like you're achieving but we celebrated like <laughs> you just like Constantly, whenever we, you know, we, we, we met a milestone, a very small milestone, we celebrated. Um, and I thought that was like, I mean, that was partly because Chris liked to go to the pub and, you know, have a good meal and a, and a drink. That was part of that. But the, the other reason was that he, he actually recognised that, that we've, we've achieved yeah. together. We've achieved something quite, quite big. Um, and also, you know, he said to me, you know, I, I had these these dreams of I'll, I'll finish it in three years, you know. And he said, look, give yourself five years. He was very realistic. And I think that's the other thing with with, with PhDs is you need to be realistic. And, and, and um, again, there's nothing worse than having someone who's putting pressure on you to, um, to you know, to, to finish in, in within timelines. I think... The PhD needs a lot of time. It needs a lot of space. Um, it doesn't need the the, the It doesn't need to be target driven or performance driven. Um, and so he was very good at, at, at recognizing that whenever you know, the, the you know the university that we, we were based at, whenever it introduced targets or performance or anything that was monitoring us, <laughs> it was very good at sort of deflecting that. And saying, you know, this is, you know, don't take much notice of this. Just you've got to do this, you know, in your own time. Some great advice for any supervisors listening as well. <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah, I think that the, the pressure to do the PhD is, is, um, you know, it can be, it can be horrible. There are really, really lots of horrible pressures, and um, you know, you you put enough pressure on yourself without without others sort of, you know, putting pressure on you. That's fantastic. A really, really interesting um, short biography and and bringing us um, bringing us up to date in terms of your professional life. Um, just one question we always ask is is just for people listening, just to to um, I guess get to know you a little bit as well. Um, you know, what tell us one interesting fact about you which doesn't relate to to research or maybe professionally. Okay, good question. Um... Most people probably wouldn't know that I um, I did jujitsu when I was when I was younger. So um, wow, <laughs> really, yeah, really uh, I'm not a, I'm not a black belt or anything. But actually, the the place that I that, that I learned when I was in when I was in Liverpool um, was um, I was helping kids uh, teach. So I was like I was kind of like a you know I was I was with the sort of the, the seven and eight and nine year olds. <laughs> But I was like 15, yeah. um, and the, the teacher said, "Look, Brian, I, 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 you know, you can come and learn. If you help me with the kids, you can come and learn for nothing." It was in my local sports centre, so I went and and I learned um, jujitsu. Um, the funny thing is, my um, my PAC supervisor Chris, he, he he said he was a a black belt in karate. Funny enough, <laughs> uh, but I um, I was. Uh, I, I was working in Superdrug in Liverpool um, part time, you know, over weekends when I was doing my A levels, and then and then when I came, 
and I moved to London to do my degree. I worked in Superdrug, and um, and I met this security guy. He's huge, massive guy, Tony. Um, and you know, you you didn't really you didn't mess with Tony if you were if you were a, a, a shoplifter. Right. <laughs> you didn't mess with Tony because he was you know he could pick probably three people up with one hand. He was he was. <laughs> he was like six foot, you know, six foot five, um, and uh, you know, skinhead, um, absolutely um, enormous. And he said, "Brian, we do ju- we do jujitsu in the local one of the local um, clubs." And funny enough, my mum did line dancing in the in the social club next door, um, and it was really weird. You walk into the pub. And you know, with your jiu-jitsu, with your short and t-shirts and stuff, and you say, you know, I'm here to do jiu-jitsu, and she says, go through the back door, just, just, you know, the back doors, <laughs> and it's the weirdest, like, you know, weirdest thing. Um, and they they set up a proper, um, I forget the name now, where you um, you have a proper ring um, set up with the sheet over all the mats. Um, uh, you know, it's something like out of uh, Karate Kid, the Karate Kid movie, you know. Um, and he, he, I went in there and they were like there were there was one woman and four men and they were all in their 40s 50s most of them uh, apart from Tony was in his sort of late 30s I think at the, t- at the time and they were all black belts black or brown belts basically but the, the belt didn't matter they weren't a, they weren't one of the, you know, the clubs today where you you know you want to see how your kids progressing and oh when are they going to be able to you know um, be assessed for the blue belt or the, they didn't care about the belts they all had <laughs> these like most of them were black brown belts but they didn't care about that they were just the most amazing um, uh, people martial arts people that I've ever I've ever ever met or known um, and they they taught self-defense um, primarily it was about teaching you self-defense so if you got into trouble um, if someone pulls a knife out, they'd say, Brian, you've got to run. You know, if someone pulls a knife, you just run in the other direction. But if you're cornered and you've, you've got nowhere to go, this is what you do. And it, <laughs> it was like, really, like, some people call it, you know, on, on par with sort of street fighting, you know. So it was like, you know, <laughs> you know the teacher would to, like, break someone's nose or smash up their kneecap or whatever. <laughs> but it was really good. You know, you came out, I came out feeling so confident. Yeah. Not just not just about, you know, being able to sort of look after yourself, but but just just generally feeling confident. Like when you do sport, you you have this confidence after doing sports. Um and so that was like that was an amazing kind of um yeah, that was I suppose an amazing experience that I'll always kind of treasure. Really interesting. Really uh, interesting. Yeah, I'm not I'm not a, I'm I'm still not a I'm not a black belt or anything, but you know. I can probably still do a, still do the odd throw or whatever. <laughs> really interesting in terms of like thinking of like ethnographic research as well. You you were right in the sort of looking at the rhythms and patterns of interaction and yeah. I mean, I I'd, I'd love to you know I'd love to sort of go back and do you know yeah. see if to see if that's still there and still yeah. you know I, I, and maybe it is you know maybe it's you know I don't know. Um, I I I mean I was lucky enough when I came to London. Uh, to play football with a group of guys who've been, who are still playing football on a Thursday. They've been playing football on a Thursday since the 1980s. <laughs> so, so like my whole lifetime, they've been playing football. Um, and, and, and occasionally the new people introduced the new faces, you know, the new, there's new faces, but there's a group, a solid group of men Um who've been, you know, been connected through one way or another since the 1970s and 80s, who play in London. And I played with them. And they used to call me the youth policy because I was the youngest player. <laughs> so, you know, they were all sort of 30, 40 plus. And I was, uh, I was in my 20s. And I played with them for, for about 14 years, um, wow. which is quite, you know, it's quite remarkable. And it, they had the same... They had the same setup, you know. It'd be always six asides. If someone dropped out, they'd get someone in there. Um, it was really funny because on one occasion, this is quite a funny story. <laughs> on one occasion, um, I turned up 
Um, and it was um, um, what's the the, uh, the Liverpool player, Jordan Jordan uh, Henderson. Jordan Ive. Ive, yeah. Yeah, Jordan Ive was was um, playing for Liverpool at the time. I think he went to uh, Bournemouth later on. That's right, yeah. Um, and Jordan Ive was playing, and Jordan um, Ive was play was was on the pitch before we turned up playing five sides. And we knew some of the guys. We knew some of his friends, and his friends wanted him and Jordan to come and play with us. You know, and I'm, I mean, there's numerous Liverpool players, and you know that we play. So you you'd think that we'd be like, you know, <laughs> yeah, we really want to play. Um, but actually, we said no. We, th- th- these rules have been like for like forty years old. Like it's six sides. You know, we we never play with seven. We never play with five. It's six sides, and we have the six. If we have the twelve, turn up. That's it. So we have to turn them down. <laughs> I'd be like Liverpool football, being a Liverpool football supporter and turning down you know, a Liverpool player to play with was quite something. Um, but the funniest bit of the story was I couldn't find my shorts. And uh, and I don't care. I, if I want to play football, I want to play football. So I ended up I ended up playing in my boxer shorts, like like <laughs> the six sides. <laughs> And there's like Jordan and I sat there watching me run round, thinking, <laughs> why, why have you selected this guy instead of me? So uh, that's a that's a sort of a, a funny story, but but it's you know, there's another sort of another thing I'd love to do an ethnography on, you know, yeah. on, on that that network. You yeah. know, how does something like that maintain itself yeah. for forty years? Yeah. And and you know these are things that people don't even know about. You know, you know the jujitsu and the football are things that people don't even know exist. That these networks last for you know, I mean those networks have lasted. You know, numerous relationships I've had with you know partners and things. You know that they, they you know that sort of that fourteen years that I played football. And so it saw me through many jobs and it saw me, you know, through many roles and many relationships and friendships and things. But actually that network I'm still part of and I still get it. They've got it on a WhatsApp group now. You know, I, I get, you know, every every week it asked if I want to play. Of course, I've not played for, well, about 18 months with the pandemic and I'm being outside of London, but I still get asked. Um, so it's amazing. Those These networks are amazing things to, to sort of, to understand it's one of the things i learned myself doing my phd you know when researching the social movement that it, it you know the, the the building of a social movement is really about relationships and networks and the sustaining of a social movement across again 30 40 years is, is really about the networks and relationships as well but i don't want to talk about my research this, that's a good opportunity to to get into you and your research now so how would you conceptualise your research area? What would you say it is? So that's that's interesting, um, and it's another. I mean, it's a good good question because it's it's kind of like about identity, isn't it? Your research area is sort of about your identity and who you are. Um, and my uh, my research, I suppose, has been in. Well, I suppose my research has crossed over lots of different. Um, aspects and things and what I've taught and what I've been interested in has cut you know cut right across many different things but um, my PhD was on technology and work I uh, was an ethnography but it was, it was using Heidegger's philosophy um, and I later got into Milo Ponte um, um, to talk about how that technology was uh, was was used in the workplace um, and I got into talking about bodily presence um, so I got into talking about the body. So my 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 research is very much about the, about technology, about work, but also about the body. Um, but then I also, through the idea of technology, you know, and technology replacing um, some of the roles that we do. So I was, I was looking at expert systems and artificial intelligence. I got into looking at um, unemployment, and I got into looking at precarious work. So I've written I've written stuff on. Um, Lot, I've written lots of chapters on precarious work and, and unemployment. So I wrote, I wrote in a, a, a text called Social Problems in the UK. The second edition comes out, actually it's just come out um, um, with, with Routledge. Um, so I, I write a, a chapter on the gig economy and work. Um, 
and I last year I published a book called um, Universal Basic Income, um, which which was also with Routledge. Um, so I've been, you know, I, I've been taking the work and technology into different into different avenues. I'd, I'd really like to get back onto the Heidegger and Miller Ponty stuff. Um, is, is what I'd really like to get back back into. Um, but I've also, you know, I, I, I did a lot, you know, I talked about my involvement with, you know, community organization in Liverpool. So, you know, I, I was also a, a, a co-director of a centre at London Met University called the International Centre for, Com for Community Development, um, ICCD for, for short. Um, and I did a lot of, I did a lot of work, um, I, I guess some of it was research, but some of it was just community um engagement and 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 work with with the center so we um we helped to build a, a school in Sierra Leone uh, was one of the projects we, we did and I went to um I went to Rwanda and, and I, I taught at the University of Kigali it is now it's called the Kigali Institute of Education I taught a course a master's course there I developed a master's course there um, which was amazing absolutely amazing um because you literally, I literally took a, su a suitcase full of books um, that, that colleagues had donated, and I, I left the books in the library, and I wrote the course based on the books that they had and that I'd, I'd, I'd taken. Um, you know, because you can't go to Rwanda and say, you know, buy, buy a Giddens book for 40 quid, you know, when, you know, the, um, you know, the guy who was um, serving me breakfast, you know, was on a pound a day, you know, you know, you just can't, <laughs> you just can't, you just can't do that. So, so that was a, a really amazing um, experience. Um, so I've done like sort of stuff that's sort of local, international, um, and and stuff that links to technology, work, and the body. Um, I suppose work would would, you know, work and technology yeah. would, would probably um, fit yeah. most with with my research. I mean, that's a good, again, it's a good, really good opportunity just to, to sort of think about your current work then, you know, and, and, and maybe maybe some stuff from the book, uh, maybe some of the themes which have come from that, which might produce, um, you know, future research projects moving forward. So talk to us a little bit about where you are currently. Okay, so um, I've, I'm, I'm planning a, a, a sociology of work text um, which I'm, I'm planning to co-edit. Um, so that's sort of the that's sort of the next project. That's my next um, uh, uh, sort of one of my next sort of big projects. Um, I've just um, I just submitted an article to Qualitative Research on the Sunday. It was um, um, using Henry Bergson's philosophy from from the Creative Mind, um, which is a fantastic bit of philosophy um i highly recommend reading henry bergson's work um and that's looking at um homelessness in um homelessness and being out of work in in moscow um so a, a really good colleague um who's based at uh, lmu um svetlana stevenson uh, a, a, a professor over there she's did some brilliant work in moscow um and we're looking at time and we're looking at homelessness and time. So how time can seemingly speed up or stand still or slow down and how the rhythms of, of social life being on the streets is completely different to the rhythms of social life of, you know, working in the big city. Um, so that's what we're, um, that's what we, we've been working on. And I, I, I sort of did the, I was sort of working on the theory part. So Bergson was sort of my, um, my introduction um, and it, it, it actually went back to about this goes this paper goes back about three years because I was teaching on a theory module at LMU about four years back now and Svetlana came and sat in my lecture because uh, she wanted to hear you know we were talking about Bergson and she wanted to to hear more about Bergson so she came and sat in my lecture which was lovely you know when when colleagues come and sit in your lectures that's really really nice um and that's what started the you know the, our article um so this is i mean this is an article that we've been developing over you know three or four years 
which is quite is quite something. But I think that's how I think good articles are. You know, take a lot of time to develop. Um, it's not something that you just sort of knock out in a week or a month or a year. It's something that takes, uh, you know, a considerable time to to develop. So we we develop these sort of ideas around. Um, without going into too much depth here, but we, we developed these, these ideas around time. Uh, we called it elast, elast, elasticity um, and tempo. Um, so last, elasticity is sort of like zooming in and out, like an elastic band is our, is our metaphor. You know, you can zoom in and out of social life um, or tempo is like the pace of social life. Um, and then we had an, another idea of, of we called extent um which is kind of like thoroughness of something you know so really it's fascinating because some of these homeless guys in 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 moscow men and women some of them would zoom into aspects of what they were doing on a day-to-day basis but they completely zoom out of what happened to them as a child so it's almost like their childhood because they suffer from abuse and, and and other you know really terrible things they, they just didn't want to, it just didn't kind of like, it wasn't something that they ever wanted to return to. Um, so really fascinating, you know, but again, it's like, like introducing theory, good theory. Yeah. Um, so yeah. my, I mean, my, my sort of top sort of, my top theorists, if you like, is, is Heidegger, Miller, Ponty, Biggs, and, um, and the other guy I really like is, uh, is Wittgenstein, of course, is, you know, um, Wittgenstein is very niche, you know, it's very, very particular. Um, but I, 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 I love the Heidegger stuff because Heidegger wrote a lot of, a lot of stuff. Um, you know, you can keep, keep reading and reading Heidegger and never kind of, never, never come to an end with Heidegger because there's so much to read. Um, and then, then there's all the sort of the influences that Heidegger had on so many, many people. Um, yeah, <laughs> I'm just I'm just sort of thinking that the, the, the question I was I was going to then ask was, um, you know, why do you actually do this? You know, why do you do this research? Why do you do this type of research? And what what's the bigger impact of it? I mean, there's some big themes in there, isn't there? There's time, there's work. Um, what what's the impact? What what's the bigger what's the bigger impact? Yeah, I mean that's a it's a really it's a really good question. Um, just, just draw on Heidegger. Heidegger has this term. It's called the, the, for the sake of which, um, and uh, for 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 Heidegger, you know, the, the sort of Dasein, their being is always involved in stuff. It's always involved with um, activities, and activities involves people. He calls others, and and it involves um, um, uh, things. Um, that we, you know, that, that we, that we do stuff with, um, and and Heidegger talks about comporting ourselves. We're always comporting ourselves to do. He calls it the in order to, you know. So you you, I don't know. You you teach. You you, you prepare a lecture in order to to teach a lecture. You 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 do the lecture in order to do the module. Um, but at the end of all of these in order tos, you know, in order to do the marking, in order to enter the mark, in order to get paid, you know, you you got this kind of like. What comes out of this in order to is a very sort of like a, a very science sort of rationalist instrumental kind of you know what, what are you what are you being an academic for you know yeah. to, to get get you know, at the end of the day you do it just to get wage you know to get published to, you know what are you doing it for um and heidegger has this other really key um part which he calls for the sake of which for the sake of and it could be, you know, you know, it could be for the sake of making your family proud, or for the sake of being a good person, or for the sake of helping people, or for the, and it's that for the for the sake of which is like the real the moral, that's where the moral aspect of what you do in your everyday life, you know, becomes really, really, I think, crucial, really, really important, um, and that's what that's what doing it sort of the artificial intelligence stuff and the expert system stuff. That's what. That's what the computer programmers, not saying they, they are, you know, the computer programmers are, aren't very intelligent people, but when I say they don't grasp it and talk about as a, as a sort of a, as an approach or as a discipline, they don't grasp it. 
because when you ask a computer programmer why why an airplane pilot um, flies an airplane, they look at all the rules, but they're not looking at the for the sake of which you know for the sake of he doesn't want to die you know flying this airplane. And this is the thing with the, the Uber taxis and the auto the automated airplanes, is that they're all following rules, but they haven't got the um, the moral the ideological approach you know they haven't got a family you know that's that's going to miss them if they you know get get involved in a crash on the motorway or if the the plane drops out the sky um and this is one of the things that came through my research you know was that what is what is the what's the forsake of which what is the kind of the fundamental reason why you do what you do um and I think my, you know, mine is, I think my, mine's partly, I enjoy what I do. That's that's a big, yeah, I enjoy sociology, you know. Um, um, people who sort of who know me both in and outside of academia, you know, sort of call me Mr. Sociology because they, they <laughs> I, just, I just like, I, I'm into the stuff. Even students, and they shouldn't say this, students say to me, you're really into this social theory, aren't you, Brian? Like you're really, you know, you're really passionate about. It. And I'm like, well, so should you be. You're an, un- you're an undergraduate, you know, doing sociology. Um, so I think that that enjoyment and passion is there. I don't think that's true of all academics. I think lots of academics teach subjects because it, it's a, uh, um, it, you know, they're thinking about their, their their families and they're thinking about paying their bills and they're thinking about, you know paying a mortgage i know someone who's you know he gets paid a lot of money working in a bank but you know says well i don't i don't, don't really enjoy it that that much but you know I'm, I'm on a good good income um but i think also the um i think the people is is really key you know the pe- people is really really quite quite key the people that you meet in this research the students that you teach at university the colleagues and friendships that you make I think that's quite key for the for the sake of, you know for the for the sake of which why do you do what you do there's a, there's a sort of transformatory aspect to relationships you know to build it, to establish your relationships whether it's with students or whether it's with colleagues or whether it's with participants when you're doing research there's something transformatory i think about just building building relationships I give, I give I'll give you an and I give give you an example. So we've 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 been doing lot. I've been doing lots of um, since since I've been at Solon, I've been doing lots of as everyone does talks at um, at colleges. You know, um, taste the talks and things like that. Um, and most of them, it's it's really nice. You meet you meet the tutor. Um, you establish rapport with the, the the tutor, and you're doing sociological research. They might be wanting to do some sociological research, free enough, or they might might be wanting to do a PhD or a master's. And so you you sort of build that relationship, and you you build that relationship with the kids, and that's fantastic. But there has been one or two um, invitations that I've taken on where I've gone into a, I've gone into a college in Southampton, and literally. The, the coordinator and there's a you know there's a manager or coordinator to this right so the manager or coordinator has to fill a gap and the gap sociology and they call the university up and you say we've got a gap here and they parachute you in and you go in there and you feel um like a little cog you know you feel like a, a, a worthless a worthless good for nothing you've just gone in and you've just talked about the thing that you love but actually, um, no one's really that bothered, you know. That it's it's all part of the machine. It's about getting the machine to 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 operate. You know, we can go to Foucault for this, you know, for for understanding how all this works and, and others. But and that's just horrible. Like that's what that's the sort of that's the sort of working that I don't like. Um, you know, I was hoping I arrived at the college, and I was you know I was hoping that. Um, you know, the, 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 the sociology tutor would sort of, you know, be there to say hello and to introduce me to her, his or her students. But it wasn't like that. It was like, you know, someone was just there to meet and greet. They were given a job, meet and greet. You've got to smile. You've got to, you know, <laughs> you've got to take them to the room. You've got to offer them a tea and coffee, a biscuit. It was all, 
it was all laid out like a perfect script. And it's a bit like going to um, these chain restaurants, you know, Pizza Express and, and asking the lot, where, you know, they come over and ask you, you know, halfway through your meal, are you enjoying your meal? They don't care one bit if, you, if, if you're enjoying your meal. <laughs> I can not. see us going, we're getting into Jean-Paul Sartre, really, yeah. aren't we? Bad faith. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're just, yeah, absolutely. They're, I mean, they're, they're just ticking a box. You know, they go back to the screen and they tick off. I, I asked the customers that they enjoy the meal. And, and education can all, being, you know, universities and education can be a bit like that sometimes. It's literally just, you're just doing stuff to tick a box. And that's just, that's horrible. You know, that's um, dehumanizing. Um, that's what Goffman called the mortification of the, of the self. That's in, um, in um, asylums. Um, the more you know, the, the the selfish stripped, you know, when the when there's the the some of the Jewish prisoners, you know, where at the 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 Nazi concentration camps, you know, they arrived and they, you know, women were were head shaved, they were stripped naked, they were dipped in bleach, and then they stood on a chair, you know, two chairs with their legs wide open and inspected. That was completely, you know. The, what Goffman called the mortification of self, the stripping away of the self, and then given a number, given a given a a, a, a suit to wear, you know, um, stripy suit, you know, and, and given a number, and given you know, the star of David, and that was your badge, and that was, and that was just when you when you when you feel like a number, and nothing else, it's so you know dehumanizing, and there's loads of parts of education to that, and I and that that's I suppose what I try to. I try to avoid that. I think what, what one of the one of the sort of thing Emma and I try and finish with uh, with with the podcast is you know thinking about you know people who are listening and and maybe giving a, a point of advice from from the experience you've you've had in terms of you know doing research. Anyone who might be interested in doing research, uh, maybe someone who's done done a little bit of research but wants to to get more involved in it, what one piece of advice would you give them? But I, I actually think you've been doing that for the whole podcast. You, podcast, you've been drawing upon these experiences, maybe not explicitly saying this is advice, but it's definitely been there. But look, do you want to just, you know, to finish here, do you want to give, you know, just maybe there's one thing you've learned about your experience so far working in academia and doing this research. What would you, what would you say to people who are listening? So, yeah, really, really good, good, uh, good question to ask, Mark. I, I think I, I worked with a lot of people who, many people I, I who, who I was taught by, and you know, obviously I, I was taught sociology twenty odd years ago, so it's very different. Um, many of them, many have PhDs, but many didn't didn't have PhDs. Um, many published, but many didn't publish. Um, but regardless of whether they published or didn't publish, that they, they were they were some of the most talented, most special, most intelligent, most fantastic people that I've ever had the pleasure of working with and being around, and very inspirational. Um, and um, and they they actually <laughs> many of them didn't care about you know this, this what we're talking about for the sake of it. They didn't care about how many articles they published. <laughs> They didn't care about if they had written a book or not written a book. They just didn't care. Um, they they didn't get involved in that in the rat race of academia, which we've seen sort of take take off, especially over the last ten years, really taken off. So my advice would be to try and take a bit of inspiration, like I did. I take a bit of inspiration from them, and don't get involved in the in the rat race, unless you know, unless you really that's something you really want to do. You know, unless you're you're, you know, you want to speedily write and try and publish as many things as you can. Um, pick and choose things that you want to do, um, and and take you know take on opportunities as they arise. I've taken on lot opportunities. Um, and I've taken lots of opportunities, um, but also you know probably just to say, Mark, that um, you know I. I you know, I could have in the in the years I've taught, I could have published lots and lots of you know lots of other things. Um, I could have published a lot of a lot more, done more research. You can always do more. <laughs> I suppose is the 
is the is the thing. And and really, you know, I've um, I think everyone gets that feeling of there's a deep, very deep seated feeling in academia of your um, you're not worthy. Very deep seated, and I think it touches on academics across all the different disciplines um and it, it's it's a horrible feeling that you're you, you've not you've not because you've not done your phd or because you've you, you've not got a phd or because you've not you've not published an article yet or because you've not published a book or you've not written a book people and these are like real and, and it's a horrible and the, the reason why that horribleness exists um and if you think about, we're talking about Goffman earlier, thinking about Goffman stigma, that stigma of, oh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an unpublished academic or whatever, or I haven't published enough, is because the, out there is this these ideals that make you think that, you know, you've got to be churning out publications left, right and centre, and you don't have to, <laughs> you really don't have to be doing that. Um, when I say you don't have to be doing that, it's different institutions put different pressures on people. Um, but I think you know you'll go mad if you fall fall for the fall into that trap of I've got to I've got to got to got to chain stuff out. Um, you know it's it's this um, turning things into numbers, and we, we talked about that feeling of turning something into a number, and that's what that's partly what the ref does. You know it, it quantifies what you you do, it turns it into a number, um, and that can be horrible because you've spent four years writing an article you get the article out, you're really proud of the article, and then someone comes and gives it a three or a four or whatever, you know, uh, and, it, and, then, and then they want you to produce the next one. <laughs> and it, it's, it, I say they, you know, institutions, the systems that we're part of. Um, so, so try not to, you know, try not to um, get into, the, into that right race. And I, I, I do think that, since since arriving at Solent, Solent, I've got the balance quite right. So, um, you know, when I was at LMU, I was teaching, you know, five modules, um, five or six modules, you know, pit term, you know, teaching every day, you know, um, and it's not like that. And uh, certainly in, in in our faculty at Solent, it's not like that. Um, and also, um, but also all the universities, people have got the, the, the pressure of publishing. Um, I know colleagues, at, um, you would say posher universities, you know, more the, the, the red brick unis who, who, um, who are getting real pressure to, um, to, to write and to publish and they're really stressed. They're in an, under a lot of stress. So there's the stress of teaching and then there's, there's the stress of publishing and I think I think we've got the balance right at the moment. We need to keep it like the way it is, because I think we've got the, 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 the um, you know, we've got a, a good balance. I don't feel like I, I must publish. Um, I, I feel like I'm in a position where I can, I've got space to publish, to write if I want to, and, that, and that's a lovely feeling. Um, and But funny enough, if, if I started getting that pressure on me, I'd probably stop doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Because I think, I'd, be, I'd be feeling like a cog again, you know. I'd be like, I, no, I'm not doing this, you know. I think I think that's the you know, it's also the the philosopher um in you as well, you know, is rediscovering the, the human and the moral dimensions to 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 what what we're doing. Okay, that yeah, it's a great piece of advice. Um I took a lot from that that myself. We we just finished now with this really fun, quick 30 second uh this this or that. Um so, so I'm just going to throw some quick questions at you. Just don't overanalyze it like I would, uh, okay. and just just shout out which which comes um, which comes first. Uh, coffee or tea? Coffee. Okay. Qualitative or quantitative research? Qualitative. Okay. Cat or dog? Dog. Dog. Um, I was going to ask Liverpool or Everton, but I think you've already answered that <laughs> one. So that's Liverpool, isn't it? Liverpool. Uh, book, book or journal? Journal. Okay, interesting. Instagram or Twitter? Twitter. Twitter, okay. Um, lit review or methodology? Methodology. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, chocolate or sweets? Chocolate. Chocolate. Undergrad or postgrad? 
postgrad. Winter or summer? Winter. Winter, interesting. Reading or writing? Writing. And sociology or philosophy? Oh, philosophy. Okay, well done. Thanks, Brian. <laughs> Thanks, um, I guess, on behalf of everyone um, as well who's, who's listened to, to this. Uh, thanks for your time. And it's been, um, it's genuinely been fascinating. Um, as I said, I got a lot from it, a lot from it myself. So thanks for your time, Brian. Thanks, Mark. Really appreciate it.